0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation, taught to you on school and corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have Brandon with us, and it's a special surprise. We have Matt Christman from Chapo Trap House. A lot of people talk about how billionaires need to do philanthropy and stuff, and they always cite Andrew Carnegie as an example of a great philanthropist.
1: Yes, uh, he has the famous hall in New York named after him, and hundreds of libraries all across the country were built by Andrew Carnegie. After he'd amassed his fortune, he decided to give it all away. And in a lot of ways, Carnegie is the model of a good billionaire, not with not only with the philanthropy, but the fact that unlike most rich people now, he was a legitimate rags to riches tale. He started off as a railway telegraph operator who worked his way up, a Scottish immigrant who worked his way up to become, you know, the equivalent of a billionaire. And so, yeah, he and he endowed you know, institutes of higher learning like the Carnegie, uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Yeah. But, of course, it was all built on hyper-exploitation of labor. And there were two big moments in Carnegie's life that really put a spotlight on the...
0: Before you get there, can you explain what was Carnegie's business?
1: Steel. He became essentially the steel magnate, the robber baron in the steel sector when the economy was being split up into trusts, these monopolistic industry leaders, and he was the monopolistic industry leader in the steel industry, which meant that he ran his own para-state in western Pennsylvania, which was the heartland of steel manufacturing. And part of that was that he and other rich people in Pittsburgh, they created an artificial lake outside of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where they could do pleasure cruises and fishing and, and old-timey fun like where they would wear bathing costumes and play badminton and all this weird stuff that you see people doing and like silent films but while they were doing that they were of course spending no money on maintaining this incredibly complicated dam system that they'd erected to keep the water together and in 1889 there was a storm which led to the dam breaching and The entire town of Johnstown, which is next to the artificial lake, being flooded and killing over 2,000 people.
0: Wow. So, wait, so they built, that's actually a glimpse of probably the future with climate change, right?
1: I mean, just in terms of creating, of rich people creating artificial, personal, private habitats, certainly. And when it was all said and done, the responsibility for having done this was, of course, not laid at the feet of the people who actually did it the association of rich people led by carnegie ended up paying a pittance really of the amount of compared to the amount of damage that had been wrought and of course nobody ever was prosecuted that's absurd was this part of the
2: impetus for his later philanthropy
1: yeah he wanted to like get his name back basically after after being associated with that well then the other one the the real the one that really required him to get a good campaign and to ha- make sure people remembered him for the libraries and not the other stuff was the Homestead strike of 1892.
0: Just so you know, apparently at least as recent as 2018, this flood was the deadliest flood in American history, the flood of 1889.
1: And so what happened with the Homestead strike in 1892 is that among the workers at his steel facilities, there was a small group of them who had successfully created a bargaining unit and were part of a union. And they were pushing not only for higher wages, but to unionize the rest of the workers at the plants. And Carnegie took the opportunity of the of the economic downturn of the early 19, 1890s to try to break the union completely. And he went off on a European tour, left things in the capable hands of his uh, administrator, Henry Clay Frick, and kind of gave him vague orders to take care of the labor dispute. And Frick did that first by demanding a wage reduction and the the destruction of uh, of the union there, and then refusing to allow the unionized workers to enter the factory, essentially doing a lockout, which then led to a larger strike by other workers in the plant. And then... In order to deal with this upsurge of labor militancy, Frick hired uh, the Pinkerton Detective Agency to send Detective guys out. Detective Agency. Yeah, to send guys out to get people back to work. And there was a very famous conflict where a flat bottom boat full of Pinkertons, which was had been sent down the river to dock uh, at Homestead and to intimidate the strikers, ended up in a protracted day-long firefight with steelworkers on the land which That's led...
0: like a mini war
1: yeah no it was it was a little mini conflict about 14 people died on both sides together and shortly after that alexander berkman who was a anarchist and the lover of emma goldman went into his uh, henry clay frick's office and uh, tried to kill him shot him in the neck stabbed him but he didn't die and berkman went to prison so, as you can imagine, uh, Carnegie had a lot of reasons to want to burnish his image after all this stuff.
0: Well, wait, one question. Did Carnegie pay in cash or did he pay in company script?
1: Carnegie paid wages.
0: Okay, so he paid money.
1: Yeah, the company script was much mostly associated with mining operations. Okay. And he was making steel in factories.
0: Okay, so at least he was better than his cohorts in the fact that he paid with actual currency yeah
1: I mean I guess if that's the standard you want to hold someone to that's, you know, that's better than his contemporaries in that respect hey, did
0: um, he leave for
2: Europe like in order to kind of stay
1: yeah to keep
2: his name uh, okay so th- this is a Washington going back to DC during the whiskey rebellion kind of move
1: yeah yeah no he wanted he didn't want his name really associated with the hard the hard business that was ahead meanwhile Frick didn't care Frick was uh, absolutely unconcerned with his uh, public persona and those kind of things. He was much less effacing than Carnegie.
0: Um, I was reading this book by Gustavus Myers about the great American fortunes, and they talk about how actually kind of Carnegie started the PR industry in the 1900s.
1: Yeah, for his own identity, basically. Yeah, to, to, to make the brand... Carnegie positively associated in people's minds which is kind of funny because at the time it wasn't really strictly necessary as i said you had these monopolies going around that it wasn't like they had to worry about competition people weren't going to get their steel elsewhere but i think it was mostly about ego he didn't want people to think he was a bad guy
0: back then like in the 1890s like there were no laws that protected union workers like now we have so many protections of union workers it was a free for all right
1: Oh, yeah. No, there was no protections of any kind for workers at all. I mean, they were totally at the mercy of their employers. And one of the chief mechanisms that they used to keep workers disorganized and unable to challenge them was private detective agencies like the Pinkertons, uh, who did a number of services for mine operators and factory owners in order to keep the workers in line the paramount the chief one of those is the pinkerton agency
0: so let's say that i in the late 1800s wanted to have a secret union meeting like what would the pinkertons do
1: well what would have happened is is that if your employer has any concern about unions he's heard rumblings from you know foreman or whatever about people talking about unionizing or if they've seen union organizers in the community or something is they would hire someone like the pinkertons to send agents into the factories posing as workers so that if there were union meetings, they would be there and they would be able to tell the names of everyone who attended and what their strategy was so that if they wanted to fire everybody who was at the meeting, they could do that. If they wanted to keep them going with an agent in there so that they knew the whole time and then wait for the right moment to strike, they could do that. That was one of the prime... Uh, strategies they had was to just literally send spies into the uh, factories and the mines.
0: Wow, that is a lot of that. That's that's mind-blowingly sneaky. And they also did some kind of like they could at, at that point, the Pinkertons could also do like a sabotage during a strike, like beat up an old lady or something and make it look like the unions are bad.
1: Yeah, well, they had to, I mean, yeah, you had Asian provocateurs during, during a strike, you'd have Asian provocateurs, but then you would also have, as I said, at Homestead, they would just show up to intimidate strikers or kill them directly. So uh, they they could kind of come from both sides on that. But the moment of industrial espionage that kind of brought the Pinkertons to national prominence and actually kind of created the detective genre was the the case of the Molly Maguires. What Uh, is it? So the Molly Maguires were a sort of semi-mythical, Secret society among Irish mine workers, first and peasants in Ireland, first, and then in the UK, and then the, and then in Pennsylvania, so, uh, and they well. were, you know, sort of the avenging angels of the of the Irish uh, working class. It's like
0: a, a real life Batman.
1: Kind of, yeah. And they would they would have secret meetings, and if there was like a really bad foreman who was giving people a hard time. They would maybe, you know, show up at his house, intimidate him. Oh, my God. In extreme instances, maybe take a shot at him or or kill him, beat him up, something like that. And in the 1870s, late uh, 1870s. One question.
0: Why did they call themselves Molly Maguires?
1: uh, It's some Irish nonsense. Okay. It started in Ireland, you know.
0: Okay. But, okay. So, and and then what? They had a lot
1: of insane names for stuff because in in Ireland, of course, there's this, you know, this history of Peasant uh, re- resistance to the English landlord class, and so you'd had all these groups of um, of sort of, I guess, some like uh, John Reed would call them social bandits. You know, like organized bandits, but but who organized along the principle of messing with and resisting their land on, landlords. And they had names like the Peep a Day Boys and the White Boys, the Straw Boys, <laughs> oh, God. and the Molly Maguires were one of them. And then. As those to... people came over here, the organizations persisted, or at least the knowledge of the organizations persisted. And so the the uh, the big coming out party where the Pinkertons was in the 1870s, when one of the Pinkertons was sent to the mines in, in Pennsylvania. His name was James McParland to pose as an Irish worker. And then after being in, um, amongst them for months and months, comes out of cover to accuse a whole bunch of... Uh, of minors of sabotage, uh, conspiracy and murder. Uh, murder. Yes. Like I said, like, uh, like foremen or bad workers or scabs or something like that. Uh, and it led to a trial with a number of executions. Uh, to this day, nobody is actually sure how much of it was even true though, because James McParland went on to be one of the first celebrity detectives in American history. Uh, and this was the case that made his reputation. Uh, and he was, the sole source of a lot of the, uh, evidence. So honestly, no one even knows to what have to He might've just made it up. Yeah.
2: You know, weirdly, um, Arthur Conan Doyle devoted an entirety of one of the, like the few long novels he wrote about Sherlock, of Sherlock Holmes to specifically lionizing a fictitious version of James McFarlane and talking about the Molly Maguires.
1: Yeah. Well, of course. I Sir, mean,
0: I- Well, he, Sir Arthur, he is a nobility.
1: Yeah. And terrified of the Irish above all. I mean, at that point.
2: Uh, Of course. Okay.
0: If you look at, like, from the 1700s, like, the English would, like, call Irish people wolves that need to be torn down and things like that.
1: Yeah. They're always, in Punch magazine, they always made them look like apes.
0: For me, it's amazing that without actually having, like, smartphones or any communicating technology that labor, and, like, with the constant threats of Then how like it was was almost magical that labor managed to be organized in the late 1800s.
1: Yeah, I mean, they were absolutely against the wall in terms they had no legal support. If there was a strike, it was highly likely that the local authorities would support uh, management. There would probably be an injunction from a local judge forbidding them from picketing or something. Uh, There would be National Guard showing up and siding with the with the management, uh, the Pullman strike, which was the biggest strike in American history, was put down because Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat and had run as a friend of labor, called out the uh, National Guard and uh, sent them to work putting the Pullman, uh, uh, in just put the, putting the railroads back uh, on a an uh, operative footing in the face of the strikers. So it was the hardest. It was it was. The thing in there, honestly, the only thing in the, the thing that they had going for them, opposed to all this opposition, was just the horrifyingly immiserating reality of, of labor as such that a lot of them didn't think they had anything to lose.
0: At least from what I know from West Virginia, sometimes like women would be like sold into like if their husbands died. They'd be like sold into prostitutions for the foremen or bosses and. So things were really bleak for labor back then.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, West Virginia is obviously one of the worst places in the country for workers during that period. In the early 1900s, you had another detective agency, the Baldwin Feltz Detectives Agency, which was just in the business of murdering people. I mean, they killed the sheriff of one of the coal counties who was pro-labor and had been involved in a shootout with Baldwin Feltz detectives in the streets of Matawan, West Virginia. Uh, well he was acquitted in his trial for murder for that case so they just shot him on the steps of a courthouse uh, wow. there was, and yeah and that precipitated the battle of blair mountain which is the largest armed conflict in America in, on American soil since the civil war and one of the first instances of aerial bombardment used uh, wow. in the continental united states So
0: do we, how, how did they what year was it and how did they use aerial bombardment
1: Uh well so it was because this guy who was a hero, Sid Hatfield, who was, it was the local pro-union sheriff who was everyone's hero and who got murdered on the streets. I'm sorry, 1921. He got murdered on the streets. After he died, the workers all left the mines, got their guns, and marched on the state capitol. And they were marching through the uh, the coal haulers on their way there, picking up people as they went. And eventually... The protective agency the local posse made up of uh, of swells and middle class guys and the sheriffs uh, and local police got together and they on this area this blair mountain had a multi-day shootout between these people and the number is thousands of people between both sides no one even knows how many people were killed because it was so chaotic and it was just people basically shooting at nothing in the wilderness and at one point the local militia got an airplane and dropped dynamite the same year, uh, that that was used at the Tulsa race riot. Also
0: 19, the 1921. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I have a, actually a quote from, so sorry to go back to Carnegie. Cause it's, I see a good juxtaposition. Like it's almost history repeating itself. Like when you look at how Amazon treats its workers and Bezos, yes. and, oh, Bill Gates, and it's probably like some kind of like, um, 19-year-old in India who's working at 2 a.m. So uh, a little bit of
2: Warren Buffett in Carnegie, too, I feel like, like really kind of where like putting these like, oh, I'm every man sort of cred out there.
0: So this is one of his quotes when decided, like, why he wouldn't pay his workers wages and why philanthropy was better. Trifling sums given to each worker every week or month would be frittered away upon richer food and drink better clothing and more extravagant living which are neither beneficial to rich nor poor
1: that's funny and i think that the uh comparison to uh buffett is very good too because he does do the everyman deal and he lives in his house he bought in the 50s and he eats ice cream all the time but Uh,
0: his dad was a congressman
1: yeah uh meanwhile he owns i think more uh trailer parks than anybody in the country
0: He is a slumlord? I had no idea. Oh, yeah,
1: big time.
2: Vanderbilt Mortgage is the biggest mobile home lender, and Clayton Homes is, like, the biggest mobile home, like, builder in the country. And I, like, without getting off on a tangent, I used to work for Vanderbilt. Yeah, it's (laughs) an evil company.
0: By the way, where did that Horatio Algiers myth come from, like, in America? It's, like, so, so annoying, and it seems like it was never historically true.
1: That's how people think of the country coming into being. I mean, they think of it being a startup in some ways. Oh, well,
0: it kind of was. It, uh, it, yeah. it, it was like the Virginia company was literally a corporation. Yeah.
1: And, the, and a lot of the people who came to the new world, quote unquote, were people who had, you know, struck out or failed in some way in in their original lives in, so in Europe
0: we and were able
1: with, to succeed here.
0: We are filled with European fail sons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, that's... Uh, so you know that the flag of South Carolina has a crescent moon on it, right?
0: Yeah, I always thought it was like it looked like the flag what would be if like South Carolina adopted Sharia law. Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> the, the, uh, the 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 crescent moon there is not for Islam. It is the symbol. It's like the heraldic symbol of the second sun. So in in a in a culture like uh, the UK, like uh, England, where a lot of them came from, you know, they had primogeniture which meant that all property would go to the first male heir, okay. which meant that every son you had after that was basically uh, screwed, and they had to figure out something else to do. So in the to middle age, they would go you know, be a mercenary or they'd become a priest or something. And what happened was is that a lot of planters' second sons in the Caribbean, where slave plantation labor was incredibly lucrative, like in Jamaica, for example, the second sons who were not going to get the plantation, they came to South Carolina. And they were the founders of the state were these second sons and ah. that's why that that's why there's that on the flag
0: why didn't they just like wouldn't it be better for them to just kill their brother <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean if they were really about that life they would have certainly
0: yeah so okay th- th- this is very shocking to know that uh, well not shocking but i'm glad we've established that we are a nation of fail sons
1: oh absolutely yeah that's the whole oh, idea yeah. <laughs> there's all this great free real estate and labor to, to access and it and it's perfect for someone who uh, yeah has no land of their own and not really a lot of uh, competence maybe
2: in a way Eric and Don Jr. are our patron saints of the
0: day dear God
1: no yeah, yeah it's true They're, well, we're, Donald we're...
0: Trump is also a fail son he
1: is absolutely I mean if he would if he'd taken the money his dad gave him and just put it in an index fund he would have like way more than he does now
0: <sighs> yeah how like I don't get this one. How on earth do you bankrupt a casino? You're like you—you you have a bunch of addicts, and the games are rigged towards the house, like that.
1: Two ways. Two things happened okay. with with the with uh, specifically with Atlantic City. One is he borrowed a bunch of money through junk bonds, which meant he had incredibly high interest rates that were very difficult to, to pay off very quickly. Secondly, he immediately opened three casinos in Atlantic City that instantly were all in competition with one another. <laughs> So that's how you do that. Yeah.
0: Wow. That is like, like extra incompetent of a, like a fail.
1: Like... Yeah. No, he, that's the amazing thing about Trump is that his entire life has been him completely messing up.
0: And failing upwards. And
1: yeah, doing, facing no consequences from it. And he, of course, comes to the conclusion after all of that, well, I must be a business genius. When the reality is, is that his specific position, like maybe his family's network of contacts or his name is more valuable to other people than if he was to, you know, be gone. And so they just kept propping him up because he could be a pass through for, I don't know, you know, billions of dollars in laundered money from Deutsche Bank or whatever. So every time he did business deal, he would have like a nice meeting, shake hands with someone. Meanwhile, the actual business deal had stuff that he had no idea what it meant. No, no concept of what it actually involved. All he knows is that he had a nice meeting with a guy and they shook hands and now he has more money. He has no idea why or how it happened. He's just been floating on this entire life.
2: It amazes me that his name has been worth anything as a brand after all this nonsense. Somebody's repaying paying to put his name on.
0: Well, now he's the president, so they do it to like buy weapons. And like the Saudi prince, I hear, still like rents like the entire Trump Hotel in Jeddah, like and it's all empty.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, Trump, Trump's goodwill can be bought for a sword dance and, and a, a ceremony now. So, yeah,
1: that is amazing about how his brand is endured, persisting that it is mostly associated with absolute failure, not only the casinos, but as was people pointed out during the campaign in 2016, all of his attempts to leverage his brand into some sort of consumer product, steaks, airline, board game, water, all of them failed. So there was never any hunger for Trump as a concept. It really all boils down to that damn TV show, really.
0: American Apprentice, right?
1: Apprentice, uh, yeah.
0: Oh, my God. You know what's worse? Like, have you ever seen the... Oh, you, okay, so the UK version gave us, like...
1: Dragon's Den or no, whatever? No, no,
0: that's um, Shark Tank oh. from Canada. Oh, right. But UK had a version of Apprentice with them. Um, oh, my God. Lord uh, Sugar? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, God. Trump has tweeted lord sugar that he needs to get down on his knees and thank trump
1: yeah for sure
0: that's like a just that disturbed me
1: well the existence
0: of lord sugar disturbs me
1: yeah no you shouldn't be able to walk around being a guy named lord sugar but uh, if you're if your name is lord sugar that you should be like an eccentric homeless person (laughs) who like shows up at a at a a bakery and they like give you a free muffin every day
0: i I know all he does is like make racist statements against croatian players yeah a, like he's like so racist, like he's actually like managed to be racist against like Polish and Croatians.
1: Well, the, the, uh, the Brits are pioneering new forms of racism against uh, Eastern Europeans.
2: I, I hate to cut in here, but is your is your thesis that any of this is bad?
0: <laughs> what, what is bad? <laughs>
2: living like Trump and living like Lord Sugar.
0: Yeah, I would say so, because. They cause a lot of harm. Like, for example, Katie Hopkins would be a nobody. Like, she's the Final Solution lady, and because she was on The Apprentice, she leveraged that to like advocate for genocide. Wait
1: a minute, that's where she got famous. Was yeah, on the a British Apprentice. Yeah. I always wondered where the hell she came from. That's funny. That is a that is a cursed and hellborn franchise. Jeez.
0: Yeah, but it also like speaks to the sociopathy of Americans because. I know people who've gotten fired. I know this woman who had brain surgery and gotten fired, and she said that those were the two most traumatic things of her life. Yeah. And watching that, uh, I mean, what's like, obviously it's fake because these are not real consequences. But in real life, getting fired can be so traumatic.
1: Yeah, because there's no safety net. People are living, as they say, paycheck to paycheck, which means that any interruption in income could leave you homeless i mean that's just the reality of it but like there's no there's no mechanisms to help people across rough patches uh you could just instantly fall through the cracks
2: well i think that means that the like that the show like the stakes are actual like real psychological stakes because uh, if you know what precarity if you're living in a state of precarity i don't know that's that's real suspense right
0: <laughs> not quite because you know it's fake and like those people aren't I mean, those people, you know, are getting paid by the episode, and so I, don't, I, it's it's drama. I don't think there's a real suspense. But
2: that's what makes the like the theme resonate. I, I don't
1: know. That's just my. Theory. Well, it is. It's. I mean, yeah, that's what gives it stakes. Is people imagining themselves being fired. But that also is what I think a lot of people were really blindsided by Trump because when Trump came in running for president at that point. One of the big reasons he could credibly do it is because he was known for that show and not for, you know, serial bankruptcies and failed business ventures. But he was known on that show for firing people. And, you know, the the job of the president is to promise people jobs. Even if you have no intention of delivering that, you talk about jobs. Meanwhile, this guy's most known for firing people. And I think a lot of people assume that that would go down poorly. But I think people... They fantasize about being the one who gets to fire people
0: okay. and, rather
1: than sympathize with the people who are getting fired. And
0: also the Pied Piper strategy where the Democrats did not actually bring out this early enough to matter.
2: Well, yeah, if the Hillary campaign had been even marginally competent, they would have pulled a page from Obama's 2012 campaign against Mitt Romney, where he was like, Mitt Romney's the guy who fires you.
0: Oh, that was a brilliant ad. There was this some poor guy from Ohio where it's like Mitt Romney came and, and to my wife. Like, ethanol made a skit of it that was actually funny, where he's like, Mitt Romney came to my wife when she was sick with cancer in the hospital and said, you're fired again.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Romney had a specific issue that he was a, yeah, a venture capitalist. And, a slave and their, their job is to just, yeah, strip companies for parts and fire everybody, which that looks bad. Whereas Trump hypothetically was supposed to do things that gave people work uh, so uh he had like he didn't have that and the other thing was is that romney seemed like a everyone's idea of a bad rich guy like a patrician out of touch snooty guy well
0: he did like admit on video that he owned chinese slaves
1: yeah and meanwhile trump is i think a lot of people's idea of what kind of rich guy they would be if they were rich
2: Ah, Burger Boy. Yeah, and so
1: I think it ended up disarming a lot of the anti-plutocrat talking points that Democrats used against Romney. Even if they tried to use them against Trump, I don't know what would have happened. But I think he was partially, anyway, immunized against them because people didn't think of him as some other, you know, some sort of caricature of a rich person. They thought of him as a relatable rich guy. Like if I was that rich, I would also have a bunch of wives from, you know foreign countries oh yeah i would i would buy the miss universe pageant so that i could go in the oh, in the right. in the, uh in the uh dressing room
0: with like hot models
1: yeah exactly yeah you know, i would have a house that was entirely gold
0: <laughs> you are, is, you, are for Cheryl P. You, yeah you actually oh you, you it's kind of funny when, when you mentioned multiple wives like some right-wing idiot tried to like run this like anti-jeremy Corbyn ad about how he's gonna get like three wives and I'm like, you're, you just gave him the incel vote here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like to me, the, like Trump's victory, like in a lot of ways, it's it's the power of cultural signifiers when there's this vacuum left by just a total lack of any sort of, I don't know, appeal to making people's lives materially better or politics.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're picking who's going to be more entertaining as a president and that's that's the end. That's the pres- thing, then that's, that's what matters.
0: That's the culmination from reality TV and that's why I support banning reality TV.
1: <laughs> it has definitely been a negative impact, there's no question. I,
0: I mean, look, like reality TV costs like 32,000 an episode and all you need to do is like some like after effects editing of like clips together to make it seem like there's something bad happened. But it's like takes a lot of talent to do script writings. Uh, like so we don't have historical dramas like the BBC does cuz it's not as profitable, so we lose all these like things that could have been.
1: Yeah, and then we get reality shows instead,
0: and the president of Trump.
1: Yeah, and, right, uh, and, and now
2: we have a reality that's even more insane than reality TV.
1: I mean, it all started it, w- w- with the real world and things, and and uh, creating people who act like there's a camera. Can you on talk
0: them. about the real world for our like our audience? cues younger, so they might not remember.
1: Well, the real world is the first. I mean, there were, before that, there were reality shows. The first reality show was the American Family in the 70s on PBS. But the first one that became a phenomenon of commercial television was Real World in the 90s on MTV. And it was just a bunch of young people who were brought together to live together. And they would just film them and their conflicts. And that's been really the model with slight tweaks of basically every non-competitive well, reality show and Big half Brother. the competitive ones. Yeah, no, it's Big Brother. It's all of them. And what it did partially was give people an expectation of how to behave in public, basically, and made people start thinking of themselves as reality TV protagonists It made themselves thinking about like what they would say in the confessional booth, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, And it made people really only respond to those people who had internalized those lessons. And nobody did that
0: better than Trump. To me, it's like such a strange cycle. OK, how, in, like we have an explanation for Trump. Can you explain Bolsonaro?
1: I mean, a big, big part of it is that
0: he's like even more clownish than Trump.
1: He is absolutely more clownish. And it's a similar situation where he was sort of uh, humored by the mainstream media for long before he was ah. pop famous. Like when he was a congressman, he, he was just a backbench member of parliament and they would bring him out. To talk because he said insane things and they all laughed at him, and so then when the you know the Brazilian ruling class decided that they were sick of the Workers Party entirely, they found that oh no you know in the process of delegitimizing Lula and and, and Dilma and everything, they'd also delegitimized all of the mainstream right wing parties. So like Michel Temer when he took power, the vice president after the impeachment of Rousseff he instantly fell to like 0% approval. And the, the center-right parties that he represented were similarly delegitimized. And if they were gonna go in that election with the goal of getting the, the workers' party out of power, they didn't really have anybody left in the legitimate right to be a viable alternative. The only one left was the absolute clown oath. Four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth a new substack, <laughs> conceived in liberty, dedicated to the propositions that all men are created equal. Go to historically.substack, is that yeah, it? Yeah,
0: historically.substack.com. Do it. One thing I really want to talk about is this ahistorical narrative of conservatism. Like, it seems like there's no... Like, like it always seems kind of reactionary you know, like there's never like a actual
1: there's nothing they're conserving
0: yeah exactly yeah
1: well yeah I mean that's because uh I think Corey Robin has written very well about this is, yeah you don't really think of it in terms of the thing that unites conservatism is not necessarily conserving anything it is opposing challenges to hierarchy and then therefore the thing they're conserving is the hierarchy and the way uh... that it's conserved doesn't really matter that's strategic. The goal is maintaining the hierarchy, which means that in a culture that is modern, in a culture that has absorbed capitalism, you can't you can't be a reactionary at least you know unless you want to be a pretentious you know Twitter guy with a Deus Volt thing and you're pretending to be trad whatever that means. If you want to be relevant, you have to embrace the disruptive elements of capitalism, as long as they are the elements that maintain you know concentrations of wealth and, and power and things like that. Even though it's just totally disrupts and undermines all of, you know, the traditional family structures and all the stuff that they claim to care about.
0: Well, traditional family structures, I mean, polygamy was pretty common until like the 19th century or the 20th century or whatever. And you'd marry your 13-year-old cousin usually. Yeah. But the thing that for me what's really shocking is looking at all the posters from the labor movement in the late 1800s and the early Mm -hmm. and then like looking at how did we get from there to Ronald reagan like it's like there's a memory hole something like got lost in the culture
1: i think what happened was is that the labor movement ended up getting absorbed into the structure basically the new deal was a huge victory for labor it created things like the National Labor Relations Board and a formal mechanism for adjudicating disputes between management and labor. And that led to the great post-war deal between management and labor that persisted in, through the 50s and 60s, which led to you know the big boom and the working people joining en masse, the middle class, with suburbanization and the high benefits and pay at, at factories, uh, high union density, something like 30 percent of workers were in unions in the 50s and what that led to though is that the trade-off was is that they had to sacrifice their radical vanguard Mm. um like so the the people who really pushed a lot of the most effective union uh strategies sit down strikes and things like that in the 30s were communist fellow travelers people like that people in the cio for example because what happened is is that the afl which was the umbrella labor union which had a tradition of business-friendly, non-radical, management-sympathetic strategy. In the 30s, a group of more radical unions, sp- led by the United Mine Workers, split off and formed the CIO, oh. the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And that was the more radical group. And a lot of those unions were, were, had communists in them. And after World War II and after we were no longer in the popular front with the Soviet Union against, against the Nazis, the Red Scare kicks off. And one of the big reasons for the Red Scare was a desire to see the radical edge of the labor movement blunted. And the the labor movement writ large decided that that was a sacrifice worth making in order to get the deals for their members that they wanted. And so there was a mass purge of of communists and radicals from uh, these unions. And then the CIO rejoined, which is why we now have the AFL-CIO. And what that meant, though, is that when... The shift happens in the seventies when the crisis occurs—the stagflation crisis, the emergence of competing industries in the former uh, enemies of Japan and Germany that that make American uh, manufacturing less uh, give it less primacy. The the changing of uh, the monetary regime and uh, global trade rules to allow peop- uh, companies to move factories elsewhere. There was nobody there to really to stop it because the union movement at that point was largely made up of leaders. And members who were used to working with management, who had kind of forgotten that it was an adversarial relationship, and which meant that they were not prepared to resist it when the time came.
2: Their fundamentally reactionary shift prevented any sort of coalition with energy from, like the young sort of new left people during the civil rights movement and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they, they, yeah, there was a, there was a huge. I mean, it, it went both ways. You had a lot of racism in the old trade unions, but then you also had. That like the 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 people who ended up making up the new left and in, in its congressional form, the people who ended up like running for office and becoming a new voter base. Uh, they were largely the relatively well off children of the suburbs, and they had no commitment to the labor movement at all. And so they tended to see organized labor as just the other side of like corporations like and, and business and like the evil war machine that made Vietnam. Like they saw it all as a peace. And so they saw uh, organized labor as as much of a obstacle to creating clean government, clean, efficient, non-corrupt government as any other obstacle. And they were hostile to it. Like the Atari Democrats from the 80s and the Watergate babies, they were all from suburban districts made up largely of professionals. And that was the new base of the Democratic Party. And they were lukewarm to actively hostile to organized labor.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, at this point, It seems like if you look at it, like imagine like like we don't like things like Uber don't need to exist. Like we could actually have a nationalized government like ride sharing platform where all the workers share equally. And oh, yeah, it's just just, just a piece of software. Exactly. Uh, um, But uh, to me, the loss of knowledge, uh, how that loss of knowledge happened is really perplexing. Like how did we lose all that knowledge about the radical left? America.
2: Well, it's an American tradition, right? Historical amnesia.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is no mechanism for maintaining knowledge. There's only pressure to forget. Okay. Like there's no countervailing force, like the speed of information, the, the, the mass media, and then that turning into now the niche media of the current moment. It's all about energy speed and forward momentum. And that means that historical memory is going to be the thing that's least valued and least emphasize
0: and that's why we have this podcast
1: folks (laughs) indeed
0: and what you mentioned about the forward media is so on point because i don't know like a few from a few years ago all these like woke liberals were talking about how not racist ronald reagan was and i'm like he's been endorsed by the kkk twice
1: yeah i mean it was pretty awkward when that nixon tape got released uh, a few months ago of him just oh uh, yeah yeah just being flatly outright racist I remember there was, I think one of his kids or something wrote an article after that saying like, Reagan wouldn't want you to remember him that way. Of
0: course not. <laughs> it's it's
1: like, like, so what? Yeah, <laughs> okay. like
0: Hitler does not want you to remember the concentration yeah. camp. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um...
1: Did he really put
2: Reagan and memory in the same
0: sentence?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: seriously. That's why he's such a, that's why him and Trump are so evocative of a moment because they're both dominated by no... A, the the ability to once something happens completely either forget it happened or create a fantasy version of it that that you then repeat ad nauseum.
0: Well, for me, Reagan still seems way more destructive. Like he was a little, he was better at acting like a politician because he was an actor. Yeah, and he seems like his legacy is so much more destructive in my opinion. Oh yeah,
1: no, he's the he's he's. The Dave Thomas of neoliberalism is the founder. (laughs)
2: His apparatchiks were more dangerous and competent, too. And Trumps are all like, I don't know,
0: guys who watch The Sopranos and think
2: that that's, I don't know, cool and smart or something. Yeah.
1: It's hard to imagine any of them pulling off something like Iran-Contra.
0: Before we wrap up, I kind of want to get the show back to like the main point is that philanthropy is very undemocratic because you're just like you're giving the rich person control on like saying, "Hey, these resources after 10, 100 years after die, like they are still Carnegie libraries around." Yeah. Like, so do you want to talk a little the bit? Ford about The Ford
1: Foundation is a good example. Yeah. Of that.
0: Oh, um, who was the idiot who made the comment that you can't raise taxes because Henry Ford was anti-Semitic?
1: Uh, that was uh Larry Summers. Okay. Uh, yeah, former Treasury Secretary. Uh, noted genius. Noted genius. Yeah, he the who fa- also in a paper famously said that underdeveloped countries are underpolluted,
0: And that, therefore,
1: it uh, makes sense to uh, pay them to take uh, pollution from developed countries. But (laughs) I believe I believe one of his points was if we know that something causes prostate cancer, but there's a country where people don't usually live long enough to get prostate (gasps) cancer. It makes more sense for you to expose it to them. Than to people in the fucking... West where they have high, higher life expectancies and are more likely to contract it.
0: My God, that's like, <laughs> that's the worst. Okay, I would say galaxy brain, but I can't even, that's, uh, there's, that's incredible. So, there's, yeah. there's so many levels of racism. And of course,
1: there's the fact that he chummed around with and took tons of money from Jeffrey Epstein.
0: Okay, who's not connected? Kind... not
1: forget that fact. Oh who's my not,
0: God. Okay. Who's not connected with Jeffrey Epstein? Now if you're I'm getting... rich,
1: you are because it's a giant network of wealth and they all, they, they provide access for things for each other. That's, like that's why they're there. Yes, like children. Uh, 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 but no, so Larry Summers said that. He said, yeah, if, if, the, if there had been a higher uh, marginal rate on Henry Ford, then he would have had less incentive to do philanthropy and more to just spend it, which when he would have spent more on anti-Semitism, which is hard to believe because the dude literally for- had every Ford dealership in the country made them stock the international Jew. And... It was in every single one of his factory showrooms,
0: and he also funded Hitler. Like it's
1: um... yes, uh, and then he said, and we wouldn't have the, as much money to the Ford Foundation, and even there, Ford Foundation is bad. The Ford Foundation exists to create cultural hegemony for capitalism. It it, it funds radicals and do-gooders whose mission is fundamentally reconstitutive of the current order. Like they went around. In the 60s funding um, radicals whose critique of like, the society was like, entirely race-based and who weren't going to talk about capitalism. And so that goes down as people think, oh, they did good work, but they're, they're doing an ideological project. And yeah, they're unaccountable. They get to, to spend billions of dollars without any public oversight and and that th- and they're only going to do that exactly. for a
2: Ford foundation grant.
1: <laughs> Yeah, they're only going to do that to keep their money. They're not going to do it to to threaten the system. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Why would they do that?
0: And obviously for me, that's the worst thing about philanthropy. Bill Gates does not know a thing about healthcare, but because he funds like random hospitals in Ghana, he gets front row seats and decides like, "Hey, maybe we need to build an app to scan like you poor person." And because they t- or something like that, like and the control they get, people don't understand, like, the access and control, like, and also philanthropy is failing because income inequality is getting worse as more and more philanthropic foundations are coming out.
1: Yeah. Uh, the thing is, as public provisions are reduced due to austerity, another ideological function of philanthropy is that it can then fill the gap created by that austerity and say, well, look, now you need us. If we if we weren't here, you wouldn't have this even though the only reason that you have the money to do that is because it's not going into the public treasury.
0: And on top of that, it's probably because Bill Gates lobbied for that austerity measure.
1: Well, of course, yeah. Yeah.
0: And, And So, like, the measure of control that, I guess, what is nice to look up with, like, the American trajectory is, like, to look at, like, how much control, like, really very rich people had. And now it's gone back up to that level. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it, we're back to the Gilded Age, yeah. It just makes you wonder what's going to happen next because, you know, what ended it the first time was uh, the Soviet Great Depression. Union. And, you know, you wonder what that would look like now.
0: And on top, like, we have 50 years for... T- 2050, though, basically, if we don't fix climate change by 2030, we'll, the world end? Yeah.
1: We're
2: looking well, at e yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. People will say things like, you know, If there are historians and such and such, they're going to look back on this and they're going to condemn the horror. And the thing is, there will be historians because I highly doubt that the human race is going to go extinct. But the people who are going to live are most likely going to be the people with the most resources now, which means that if there are that these historians in the future are highly likely to talk about how well intended the rulers were at the time. And they did what they could, but it was forces outside their control. And that how made the it people happen.
0: wouldn't be vegan, and that's why, like they all yeah, something them, like that. Yeah. yeah, like
1: yeah, they just wouldn't stop eating meat. Those disgusting pigs. What could we do?
2: Right, and we'll talk about Bill Gates as being far, far sighted futurist because he talks exactly. about he was population yeah. control.
1: He is the Cassandra that no one would listen to. Yeah, that's how they're going to remember that.
2: Yeah,
0: <sighs> the one thing that the more I do the show and the more research I do. I realize, like, how much disinformation or misinformation people are, like, uh, like constantly fed. Like, it's like black is white and white is black. And everything they've learned is basically wrong. And even from, like, the founding fathers are genocidal maniacs. Uh, so it's a hard battle, I'd say, like, to get a good, like, working class coalition in the future because everyone's.
1: Yeah, no, it's a huge challenge. And I honestly don't know how it's going to work.
2: <sighs> um uh, one one side note on the uh, the Pinkertons I came across an article earlier today which apparently the Pinkertons still exist which
1: Yes. They do? Yeah, you're... yes they do. They they're now a subsidiary of a Swedish security company.
0: Uh, okay.
1: Blackwater? No, it's not. It's sort of like that. I mean, they bought they bought up a bunch of American PI and security agencies in the 90s or something. So now Pinkerton's part of that portfolio. If it's the article I think you're talking about is how they're now going into disaster preparedness for rich people.
0: What? Is,
1: is, is that, that like what a, you're talking about? No,
0: no, no. Do tell me no, about no, this, one. this one. Wait,
1: wait. Uh, wait. This one was about them.
2: Uh, oh, well, no, I, I want to hear what Matt has to say. This
0: yeah.
1: Is... So the... Pinkertons don't really do detective work anymore. Uh, What they do is they do personal protection for rich people, and now more and more they're offering a suite of services for individual rich people and also for companies, for their employees, about managing disasters, about being quick response teams in the case of rioting or a natural disaster, and then securing spaces for people in the event of some sort of disruptive catastrophe. So they're literally, they're offering their services as sort of your personal guard in the event of social
0: collapse. But why would, in the event of social collapse, like, I would say like money is probably not going to be function. Like, I don't understand why the Pinkertons would. I think the
1: assumption is, is that there will still be money at some level, even if on the ground everyone's like bartering for batteries and shotgun shells at some level at some elite level there will be a persistence of society and they will still care what money is
0: Oh wow and, and, and so they're just like basically building like i don't know bomb shelters or yes. and like food girl
1: Yes and the Pinkertons are providing services to get you away from the riot when it happens get oh, you Lord. to your bunker and protect it when you're there Wow So that's that's the new frontier of the Pinkertons wow. from from uh, infiltrating labor unions and and uh, breaking strikes to protecting you from the apocalypse. How
0: come they didn't change their names?
1: Uh, (laughs) That's a good question. They changed it a few times. They changed like the tech, the the word Pinkertons stayed in, like they took the word detective out. It used to be Pinkerton Detective Agency. They took that out. I I think that for the people who would buy their services, it's not a bad association. Pinkerton isn't a bad brand for that. You know because if you're in the position to hire them you're not really mad that they broke up those strikes all that all those times good
2: point yeah if they're offering to shoot well, like the lower orders for bags of cash in the event of rioting or something pr is i guess not really their first
1: yeah concern. yeah
0: yeah
2: oh when you're basing your business model on the walking dead
1: yes
0: <laughs> that is hilarious And thank you so much for coming, Matt.
2: Thank you again, Matt. That sounded great. Oh, thank you.
0: Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.